Welcome to the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Drashinsky, Culture Editor at The Federalist. You can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. We are coming to you from Washington, D.C., where our guest today is Ann Schlafly Corey, Chairman of the Eagle Forum, and you can visit their new website at mrsamerica.org. If Mrs. America rings a bell with you, that's because you might be aware of the forthcoming series that Hulu is about to release. I mean, it comes out on April 15th about the fight over the Equal Rights Amendment. And uh, Angela Flicori's mother is front and center in the Hulu, in the, the forthcoming Hulu series. And that would be none other than Phyllis Schlafly, um, the conservative icon. And Hollywood is about to give her the Hulu treatment. And I'm really curious to see where that goes. And thanks so much for being uh, with us here today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on your show. Of course. So why don't we actually just start off by talking about MrsAmerica.org. What is on that website? Why did you guys decide to set it up? I'm assuming you expect um, not the worst, but the usual from Hulu when the series comes out on April 15th. So talk to us a little bit about that website. I think it's well known that Hollywood is not a fan of conservatives, and Hollywood has has sought to um, denigrate and make fun of conservative women. So when the producers of this new movie, and it is fictional, this movie, decided to uh, name it Mrs. America, I guess as a um, making fun of my mother, who certainly enjoyed the R in Mrs., because she loved being married and she loved having the name Mrs. Schlafly. So we decided that we needed to push out information, the truth information about Phyllis Schlafly. And what I have on there are a number of, I have original videos of her. I have articles about her and first person remembrances of from the women who worked side by side with her. So there's it's a lot of content on that site, which is the truth. Because what Hollywood is seeking to do is through fictional characters that they have inserted into their drama about my mother is to drive a story that is, I don't think is going to be complimentary to her because the writers and producers of Mrs. America have said they don't agree with Phyllis Schlafly. And, you know, that's interesting because it's one thing to disagree, but the way the left has treated your mother over, you know, the last half century has been so much beyond mere political disagreement. And sometimes today when we think things are really heated and toxic, I mean, you can go back to the way she was treated by the media and by the left um, in the 80s, and it was just vitriolic. So it's one thing to disagree, but they sort of like attack her as a person and attack her character. And they always have. And I'm assuming you're expecting more of that when the series comes out. Well, maybe the left only attacks people who are successful and powerful. (laughs) Did you hear that? Um, Hillary Clinton took another dig at your mother in the, uh, it's actually also a Hulu documentary that was released uh, this month. No, I missed that. Yes. She, uh, somewhere in the middle of this documentary called Hillary about her life, she says, you know, Phyllis Schlafly was out there telling people to stay in their homes. And meanwhile, she was never in her own. Well, that isn't quite the case. And since I lived it, I can tell the truth. My mother's office was in her home. She never went to an office. She lived her office. And um, and her office was at the center of the house, and it was the hub of activity. And all of us were in and out of her office every day. I mean, that's where she did her work, because my mother loved 
being at home. Right. And the left has this fascination. I wanted to ask you about this. It's sort of a recurring attack um, on your mother about the fact that she was a very successful, working, uh, incredibly intelligent and accomplished woman who was also an advocate for women who preferred um, other arrangements. And they've never really been able to get past what they see as an irony in that when, in fact, she's just really trying to be a voice for, um, you know, women who wasn't weren't professional in politics she was a voice for women who weren't um recognized at that time and her leadership gave voice and inspiration to millions of women that they that they had representation and they could get involved in the political process and i think that's one of the most important things that she did was to draw in these women into politics and and give them a reason to get involved you know she used the line homemakers as policy makers but one of the things that my mother always said is that women can have it all, but not all at the same time. And what I think a lot of the feminists don't realize is that she had babies at one stage in her life, and she got involved in, in the uh, defeat of the Equal Rights Amendment at another stage in her life. I'm the youngest of her children, and when the ERA battle heated up, I was 11. Wow, that must have been very strange for you. Well, it was exciting. I mean, right. there was a lot going on. Right, and I mean, she was so high profile at that time. Um, and as an 11-year-old, how did you react to what you were seeing play out in your own home and in the media? Were you just so excited and fully um, on board? Were you confused? How did that, I mean, that's so interesting. I never really thought about that. Well, and you pointed out earlier that my mother had enormous personal attacks made against her. Right. And I thought, and truly, that was an inspiration for me because, you know, middle school can be kind of tough. And I and my mother was getting a lot more attacks in the public sphere than I was in middle school. And <laughs> I would say it toughened me up that nobody can say anything to me that uh, that hurts me. <laughs> right. You, you probably your family probably just felt, you know, totally bulletproof at the time. Yes. Yes. That's because, so you know, her response. And I think this is very important for everybody to remember in times of of attacks. Her response to everything was a smile. Mm. You know, actually, when I was in college, um, my it was a, a YAF chapter. We hosted a speech by your mother um, and this would have been 2012. And I remember that exactly true. They had staged a walkout protest. Some of the, the liberals on the campus staged a walkout, a walkout protest. And it was just amazing to see your mother behind the podium just smiling at them, saying, have a nice day as they walked out of the room shouting at her. Um, you know, they had posters with the, whose quote is it? Is it um, Albright who says, there's a special place in hell reserved for women who don't support other women? <sighs> well, Women, women have a variety of opinions. And I think it I, I think it's a, it's unfair to think that all women are going to think alike, because that that takes us away from our individuality. And we all have opinions and views and voices. And you know, it's rather sexist, too. <laughs> it, is. About it. it is. We are um, not a monolithic voting block. Right. Um, one thing I wanted to ask about this uh, series that's coming out on Hulu, which, by the way, the cast is 
incredible. I mean, it has A-list, you know, Kate Blanchett is playing your mother. It has Elizabeth Banks. It has Rose Byrne. I mean, it's just a, they, obviously this is, you know, a higher budget uh, production. They really went all out and they're clearly excited about this project. They're advertising for it pretty heavily. What was it like for you to see in these trailers, Kate Blanchett playing your mother? That must be kind of odd. Well, she has the hair and the makeup and the costuming correct. But what she misses is the warmth in my mother's eye. She plays her as a cold, calculating, power-hungry woman. And my mother uh, led a volunteer group of women. And I don't think she could lead volunteer women unless she was warm and inspiring. And she was. She was encouraging. She got women to do things. And you can't do it if you bark and order it around. You do it by building up leadership. And that's what she did. As she said, nobody is born a leader. Leaders are made. And she made it her mission to make a multitude of leaders. Where do you think her wisdom came from because you when I when I think back at at least you know what I know is sort of an outside observer she that you know there's all of these sort of like aphorisms um that you know she was known for that when you look back at her body of work um really stand out you know exactly like the quote you just used where do you think that wisdom came from um I mean obviously she was well educated and a brilliant woman um but also it has to come from I imagine life experience as well I think it really came from her abiding faith. She she was a devout Roman Catholic, and her faith informed her um, all of her political um, ideas and decisions. She also spent uh, much of the 50s fighting against communism and the encroaching threat of communism, and so that she understood that government control uh, into our lives and any, um, you know, creeping towards socialism that we see today is bad for individual liberties and individual beliefs. And I think those Though the her abiding faith in God, her fight against communism uh, formed her reaction to all political events. And so when this idea of creating a sex neutral society and the interchangeability of men and women, that was offensive to her because it was it was changing the natural order of how God designed the world, coupled with government more power to government in order to enforce it. Yeah, I'm really curious about one thing you just said, which is that the the sort of notion that biological sex is interchangeable, or now, I mean, it's evolved into the this idea that biological sex is meaningless or non-existent, that it was offensive to her. And, you know, I wonder why that is not clear to so much of the left. I wonder why that's not clear to so much of the media, because, and you see so, some of it, now a little bit with sort of like the the trans exclusionary radical feminists um as people like to call them who do say you know when we blur these lines of gender it actually takes away some of the advantages that women fought for um and earned why is it that you know it, it, this is not talked about in the context of being offensive to women you know the, the the idea that we're going to blur the boundaries of biological sex that is offensive to women it does um, you know, take away some opportunities for women. Why don't we have this conversation in that context? 
Emily, you're absolutely right, because we live in a binary world of biological sex. There is an X chromosome and a Y chromosome, and it is immutable. You cannot change it. And if you try to pretend that these differences between males and females do not exist, women lose every time. And I and and I I don't understand why women don't see the um, how harmful the blurring of the sexes uh, can be to women. Yeah, it, it's baffling to me. And I think you know, and you may have um, a lot more experience and be able to speak to this better than I can. But I imagine that resonates with average women, you know, people whose jobs. It, it, who, who, who their job is not to pay attention to politics. I think, you know, some of them, this does probably strike them that way, especially when we start having these battles over, you know, girls track in high school. Um, I think that it resonates that way with, with women around the country. In your experience, I know Eagle Forum does a lot of sort of grassroots conservative work. How are women responding to this bizarrely revived ERA push um, to some of the, the things that we're seeing now, trends in, in sports, whether it's wrestling or track. What's your experience on that? I think you're I think you make an excellent point here. And it's worth going back to the history of the second wave feminism, which is what happened in the 1970s. And that was a movement about elite women and the rights that they wanted to get, you know, special rights to get ahead. Now they were able to get, and women can do what they, uh, any woman can achieve so much today. But what this does, this a push by elite feminists, they don't care that ERA or any of these uh, changes to the laws would affect and impact the most vulnerable women among us because it affects girls, as you point out, with the athletics. And it also affects the vulnerable women in correctional institutions and um, women's shelters. So if you say a woman's shelter cannot bar men, well, then who is hurt in that kind of situation? If you say that biological boys can play on girls' athletic teams, who gets hurt in that situation? If you say that correctional institutions cannot be sex-segregated, who gets hurt? And if you say that such laws that protect women, like um, pregnancy non-discrimination laws, who gets hurt? I mean, the woman who need, who's pregnant and is and is has a factory job. Well, she's going to get hurt. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's it's the women's shelter example is so particularly powerful because that's something that's actually happened. It's something that in Anchorage, Alaska. <laughs> yes, men in nightgowns can come into women's shelters in Anchorage, Alaska. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That particular case is so striking. And when you think about, I mean, it's just so it must be, I don't know if surreal is the right word, or maybe this is totally believable as somebody who's followed this issue for a long time. But I'm curious, the fight that your mother was in uh, decades ago has changed now, you know, from this idea that like that we're fighting for equal rights for women to now we're fighting to include, to replace the concept of biological sex with gender identity. And anything short of that is bigotry. Yes, it's true because the death, you know, what sex was in the 1970s, people had a pretty good idea of, but I don't know 
how to define sex today because every time I turn around, they create a new sex or they, <laughs> and I, I think that if you deny the idea that there are male and female X and Y, you are a biology denier. Mm. A science denier. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it's one thing that I think was so helpful in the original battle against the ERA is something that's already being really helpful now, which is saying, pointing out the arenas in which this will dramatically and immediately produce daily changes to people's lives. So whether it's restrooms or locker rooms, what have you, um, you know, that was helpful decades ago. It's helpful now when we talk about these examples we just discussed. So as someone who's kind of on the front lines um, and again, having to deal with a push for the Equal Rights Amendment in 2020, what are those arenas that you see as the most important ones that if the Equal Rights Amendment that is being considered, again, were to uh, be ratified, where would people see the biggest changes to their daily lives? Well, I think it's certainly in schools, athletics, and um, um, correctional institutions and things of that nature, there would be a change. Um, but it's it's also, I believe, it would impact our First Amendment rights because new constitutional amendments overturn previous constitutional amendments. And I don't see how you have any sex segregation. And so just imagine our religious liberties in our faith traditions, all of which are sex segregated in some sort. I think that gets overturned with with, uh, with this push to make men and women interchangeable in every situation. If anyone has, has reason to be optimistic um, in this fight, it would be a Schlafly. Um, how optimistic are you about, uh, let's see, the about society's approach to sex and gender in the future? Do you think that we will sort of hit a tipping point and return to, I guess, the common sense acceptance of biological sex? Or do you see this continuing to, you know, tumble down the slippery slope um, into, I don't know, Facebook has like 50 gender options right now. Are we going to have 5,000? Why stop there? <laughs> exactly. Um, I am optimistic. And I and and of course my mother was always a happy warrior, and because and I'm optimistic because what we're going to ha we, you cannot fundamentally change human nature. You know you can try you can try to educate people and say no no you know men and women are really interchangeable in every situation, but human nature comes back, and I I think I think people will realize when they see how how much harm happens to the most vulnerable, that there will be pushback. How much of what you learned from um, this the, the original fight against the ERA informs, in, in what ways does that inform what Eagle Forum is doing now and what you are doing now? How does that inform your approach today? Well, the Eagle Forum was founded because of the fight against the Equal Rights Amendment. And it was founded in order to give a voice to these women across the country who wanted to get active. And in the, in the subsequent uh, 45, 50 years, we have continued to be active on issues that impact women, mothers, families, wives. And, and there's so many issues that do impact, particularly in the educational arena. So what, what, what I learned in the 70s is to be persistent, consistent, and 
in everybody's face. I mean, because that is what makes the the changes. And that is why we're involved, because we are passionate about what we're doing. What was different about the way your mother approached that push back in the 70s? What, what was there? What was the secret to her success? If there is any particular thing, what do you think it was that actually helped her start to gain that momentum that ended up, um, you know, in success? Well, I my mother has often been described as single handedly stopping uh, right. ERA in right. the 1970s. But that wasn't possible. One person can't do it. What she did was she learned was she was very clever about duplicating herself and training women across the country if her if her message had not resonated in the 70s she would not have been successful but her message made an impact on millions of women who said you're right I don't want this change in my life and so what she did is she encouraged people to take her message memorize it go to their state reps and in, and make an impact within their states. I mean, one of the, the great cleverness of my mother was not to copyright her words because she wanted people to repeat, to learn the words, to get trained and do it because she was more interested in the power of her message than her own personal gain. And I think that's always an important, if you want to be active and if you want to have influence, then you have to then you have to say, let's let the power of the message work and not try to, to be the dominant. Um, and that encouragement that she gave to women was part of a huge secret of her success. I have met so many women who got active and because they were inspired her by her, because she called them up one night and said, listen, I need you to do this project in your state. And they ran with it. <laughs> I mean, that's that's critical. I will say I I'm thinking back to my high school AP U.S. history textbook, and there were no conservative women. Uh, there are hardly any conservative people covered in that textbook at all. But your mother was one of them. Um, and I remember that. really. The token conservative. Yeah, um, there was a picture of her in the middle of the textbook. Um, so, yeah, it's it's amazing uh, the mark that she was able to have on the history of the, the 20th century. Um, contra, to the point that you were just making, contra the left's narrative that I'm sure you expect to be pushed hard in this Hulu series. Do you think actually uh, your it was your mother's something about her insistence on being a wife and being a mother is actually what allowed her con to connect and to spread this message um, among so many average women, which completely contradicts, you know, the left's idea of, of how that went down. But do you think it actually was, there was something about that that allowed her to connect with people? Yes, because she always thought that the elite left women denigrated the, the importance of marriage. And I think we're seeing that today with marriage rates plummeting. I, you know, there is nothing you can do in your life that is, that is better than having a successful marriage for both men and women. A successful marriage is a source of happiness uh, across the board and more important than anything else that you can do. I, and I think everybody would, who is, who has had a, a good marriage would agree with that. Uh, the, the, in enormous um, value that comes from it. I don't believe that my mother could have done anything that she did 
without her husband because my father was supportive in four crucial ways. He was emotionally supportive, intellectually supportive, spiritually supportive, and financially supportive. He loved what she did. And having that support group at home is was a secret to, to her ability to get out into the fray because she was secure at home. How much of these culture war issues are really sort of elites versus everyone else? Because I think that's a, a storyline we see that plays out in just about every arena of the culture war today and certainly decades ago. But how much of this, how useful, I should say, how useful is that framework for evaluating some of these conversations we have about culture wars? I think the culture war is very much elites versus everybody else. I mean, what comes out of Hollywood is is usually a vision of life from an elite perspective. Um, I mean, if you think of so many Hollywood movies that that um, really make fun of, of working class and middle class Americans, I mean, it's 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 been well talked about how much. Husbands and fathers have been made fun of by Hollywood shows. I mean, I think you see this again and again of a perspective of American life that doesn't ring true. And what's so bizarre, um, and I don't know if you follow the work of like Tim Carney, but if you study marriage rates among elites versus marriage rates in the working class, they're still getting married, um, you know, at pretty high rates, and it's the and staying that, married that they've pushed, right? And and they, you know, send their kids to school, and they, it's the message that they've pushed through Hollywood and through the media that's actually impacting the working class, where marriage rates are decreasing. Yes, and it's the 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 breakdown of the family is our single biggest problem in the United States today. And that, I imagine, um, is something that you guys work really closely on and see uh, across the board as really something that's at the root of so many of the ills that, you know, we're talking about in the daily news cycle. Yes, because it impacts education. I mean, if you if you it is so much more difficult to graduate high school if you are if you do not come from an intact family, for instance. Why is it that after decades um, of this battle where elites are pushing sort of, I, I don't know, this social progressivism through their various platforms, whether they're in Hollywood, whether it's the mainstream media, whether it's academia, why is it that they're having success when some of this does fly in the face of common sense? What is it about their messaging? Is it just that they have such powerful megaphones? Um, is that why they've really been able to wreak havoc, um, you know, among the working class and other demographic uh, breakdowns? Well, I think you can you can point to a lot of different reasons why we have the the uh, breakdowns. I mean, certainly um, the idea of men and women as interchangeable has impacted how men and women meet date and get together. Um, it is certainly, um, certainly the educational system has, um, has peddled a, a, you know, a different value list than what, um, what I grew up with, which was a faith-based value list. I mean, you, you see this across the board in so many different areas. And, and I think, you know, when you describe the marriage rates of the elites versus the um, working class, it's almost do as I say, not as I actually do. Because 
you know, these are people who are living very conservative lives, but preaching a message of um, anything goes. Right. And it, it doesn't register with them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and you know the the broken homes is it's it's heartbreaking. Right, right, absolutely, and it's just it, it is sort of really hard to compute that this is a message that they've pushed. It's not something that they live, and yet it is able to take root in the people who are watching their TV shows and the people who are you know reading their magazines. The power of culture is enormous. I mean, you to, to buck against the, the wave of culture is very hard. And, you know, we see it right now with the hysteria over the coronavirus. It's very hard to buck against a, a overwhelming popular culture. Yeah, and the, the, the narratives the media is able to create, it is really remarkable. And, you know, your mother was such a, you know, I would never describe your mother as a victim, but she was so, the, the narrative was so powerful that they were able to um, shape around your mother. And I wonder how that, how did that impact her? Because, you know, fr from the outsider's perspective, it was always as though she just sort of brushed it off her shoulders. She did. Uh, but how did that impact her on a personal level? How did she deal with basically the entire country having this completely false narrative about who she was and how she lived. Well, she did brush it off. And I think I think the word victim is is worth exploring because the feminist culture has always tried to present women as victims, victims of the patriarchy. And my mother never saw herself as a victim. She was a product of her circumstances, but she was never a victim of her circumstances. And she wanted to use, um, you know, she, she said to me, I've had a wonderful life because she, she turned, you know, you might say that she turned lemons into lemonade at every step of the way. Uh, and she thought that she could do anything that she wanted. And she was not going to be told no by anybody except her husband. The only person she want, she had to please was her husband. And that's what she said. Uh, and that enabled her to, to go out. And it really didn't matter what people said about her. Now, I think the effort with this upcoming Hollywoodization is to try to paint her name as a shorthand for a bad person. Right. And, um, and, and, you know, every ism, you know, every, you know, make him out into, into something that's terrible. And, and I think that's what I want to push back against because I think she is a role model and a life worth emulating because she had enormous success and any woman can have the same success. And of course, that is a remarkable story. And as you mentioned, um, inspiring to a lot of women who've encountered it, but it's never the story that Hollywood wants to tell and they refuse to see it that way. I wonder, what did you you know, personally experience, you know, when your mom would come home at night or her office was at home when she would, you know, close up shop for the night, did she show any, you know, any exhaustion with all of the attacks? How did it, did it impact her or was it really as, you know, sort of breezy as it seemed from the outside? Um, or was it more that she was concerned about her family and your safety? How did that play out? No, I, I don't think she ever had concerns that um, that she was under any kind of threat. Um, I think she felt that um, the 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 
the free speech was there. The um, I mean, she she felt secure that she could go out and express her views, and she was she never was intimidated by anybody. And I think that's important not to feel that that you can be intimidated. I mean, for example, our phone number was always listed in the phone book. Our address was listed. In the, I mean, it was public knowledge where we lived and what wow. our phone number was. And yes, we got crank calls, but you just hang up on it. So there was an essay written fairly recently, within the last year, I believe, um, by a conservative female writer wondering, where is this generation's female, where is this generation's Phyllis Schlafly? Do you have an answer to that question? Do you have thoughts on that question? Is there anyone that you see? Or do you think there's a reason that sort of, is she just totally an irreplaceable, um, there, there will never be another Phyllis Schlafly. Just curious for your thoughts on that question. I saw that article, and my reaction is there are thousands of Phyllis Schlafly's mm. today. Because in the 1970s, the reason she got so famous is that she was seen as the only one against all other women wanted this women's movement, and she was the only one. But And because she got out there in, in the fray, as I mentioned, she inspired lots of women. And if you look around where you are, I mean, the fact that you are sitting there at the Federalist interviewing me, you're a successor to this. But there, but all the women, that you, all the conservative women that you see who are getting their voice out, and I'm so glad that there's not just one. Mm. I'm, thousands. And and if you look at all those various organizations, whether they're the pro-life organizations or some of the other uh, uh, educational organizations, you see countless female conservative leaders who are unapologetic and unafraid to state their message. That is a really nice sentiment. <laughs> I love that. Um, that's a great way to think about the question. Um, this is a, this is a, you're, you're the right person to take this particular question to, um, given what we were just discussing about how your phone was always listed. There's a lot of conversation right now about the heightened toxicity, um, in our politics. And I wonder, because we are, for some reason, fighting another ERA battle suddenly, <laughs> I wonder, um, if you think that the climate in politics today is legitimately worse than it was during that original ERA battle. Is it harder? No, it is not worse. Okay. <laughs> and and it's worth remembering some of the things that were done during that original battle. When people say it's hot today, let me tell you, it was hot in the 70s. Um, so, for example, um, my mother was hit in the face with an apple pie. <laughs> so there's physical violence right there. Um, the, um, the, 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 in, in Springfield, Illinois, which was the scene of many rallies, they um, there was um, um, a group of women went on a hunger strike. They chained themselves to the Capitol. And then another group of women, I mean, these are our opponents, not, not the people on our side, went and got um, buckets of pig's blood and wrote in blood the names of all the people they hate on the marble of the Capitol. So I'm not seeing that kind of activity today. Yeah, no, it's a, whenever you take the sort of 30,000 foot view today, it, it may feel worse right now. But if you go back just not that long into our history, there was some pretty wild stuff <laughs> happening. And you know, talk is fine. We have free speech and you can say anything and talk is not violence. When you get into physical violence, that is when it goes to another level. 
Why do you think it is that there's a revived push for the ERA right now in 2020? Abortion. That is the only reason why. In fact, ERA is the Everything Related to Abortion Act. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason why is because the proponents are very much afraid that this current Supreme Court is going to chip away at Roe v. Wade. And they want to insert something that will help protect their abortion rights. And so what we have is in New Mexico and Connecticut, the state Supreme Courts in both of those states ruled that the state ERAs, which is language similar to the federal, it must uh, have taxpayer paid abortion in those states. So we have precedents that ERA would um, enforce taxpayer paid abortion. Is, do you think this is what explains Hulu's interest in exploring uh, that from the television perspective? Um, is it, again, this sort of obsession with abortion on the feminist left? Do you think that's what this project is ultimately rooted in? I, I, think, um, I think for the feminist left, abortion is the only issue. Mm. What, <laughs> what are your sort of... <sighs> This is this is such a it's such a strange thing. I can't imagine having. Um, although I suppose you're you're used to it at this point, um, having you know your mother's life so being so public. Um, are there any stories? Are there any parts of the story that the left always leaves out, or that you wish would be told? Any anecdotes? Any just like parts of your mother's personality that you just the will never be part of the story, but were so central to the reality of it. Well, I, I think I, I mentioned earlier how she inspired women and how she really motivated women. So I think the interesting thing is that uh, my mother was Roman Catholic, but the, but the group of people that she led were mostly evangelical Christians. And her organization brought together women of disparate faiths, women who had never, who had never known, who maybe, maybe were taught not to like, um, adherents of other faiths. She brought them together in one organization. Usually people do not join multiple different organizations with people of, of differing faiths. This was, this was remarkable of what she did in terms of bringing together Catholics, Baptists, Church of Christ, uh, Latter-day Saints, all together in one organization. So what she would say at her conferences was, you may believe that the person sitting next to you will not be saved, but you're going to work together on this issue. <laughs> That's wonderful. And finding the common value among these disparate faiths was a real key and I think an unwritten part of her um of, of her success. What do you think she would, uh, what do you think she would think of the, the Hulu series? That's, I, I think it's premiering on April 15th. How do you think she would feel about it? Well, I think she'd actually find it as an opportunity to get her message out again. And she was always looking for opportunities to get her message out. That's wonderful. And do you plan to watch it? Well, of course, because <laughs> I've, I, I mean, really, I've got, I've not seen it. Um, I mean, they, they have, they've not given me a copy. They didn't ask me for my opinion. And so I, I want to make sure that the truth is out there. Since they have a couple of fictional characters driving the story, I am concerned that they are going to, um, uh, to take liberties that are not the truth. 
Right. Um, I think that's probably a pretty safe bet. <laughs> um, something you're probably certainly used to as well. Um, if you, I imagine, I don't know how many young women are going to watch this. I don't know what the level of interest is going to be. It's really, it's being marketed pretty heavily. So, you know, especially with people stuck in their homes, I think that, you know, everyone's yeah. looking for something to watch right now. What would your message be to young women who are watching what, you know, we expect to be a pretty typical Hollywood depiction of your mother in Mrs. America? You too can have tremendous success. Don't don't see yourself as a victim, but see life as an opportunity and grab it and do it. I mean, that is what my mother did. And now she enjoyed every aspect of her life, whether it was being a wife and mother or going out into the fray. And don't be afraid to go out into the fray. That is wonderful. Thank you so much for being here um, and joining us for this conversation. I'm very eager to see what Hulu does with this. Um, and as I'm sure you are much more eager to see. Yes. Well, this has been another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky. Our guest today was Eagle Forum Chairman Ann Schlafly Corey. We will be back with more. You can visit their website that pushes back on the Hulu documentary at MrsAmerica.org. That's MrsAmerica.org. Until next time, be lovers of freedom and anxious in the brain.